Former Secretary of State John Kerry has written about his longtime friend Sean Casey that Sean, quote, brought an often unappreciated skill to the vast enterprise of international diplomacy. He listened. That's a lovely compliment to pay anyone, but perhaps especially to someone so accomplished as an academic. In Sean's case, he holds a graduate degree from Harvard Kennedy School and two more graduate degrees from Harvard Divinity School. More recently, he's taught at Wesley Theological Seminary, Harvard, and the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. And as you'll hear right away, Sean is a two-way listener who long ago set out in his academic study to understand events as they are, not as his own yearnings or biases or expectations might easily misconstrue. In 2015, Sean was one of the first U.S. diplomats to meet with Patriarch Bartholomew in Istanbul, and the insights he picked up from that encounter, as well as subsequent meetings with the Ukrainian and Russian sides of the Orthodox Church over the Tomas, foreshadowed realities we are all feeling today. Religion matters. It bubbles up. Back in Washington, from 2013 to 2017, at the invitation of President Obama and then Secretary of State Kerry, Sean built out a brand new 35-person State Department Office of Religion and Global Affairs with a mandate to support the department's broader work by clearly understanding the relevant faith dynamics in countries of strategic interest. The office flourished for a season, but has not continued in the Trump or Biden years. Sean is joined today by Rachel Donadio, a Paris-based contributing writer for The Atlantic, who last summer profiled Ukraine's first lady, Olena Zelenska, for Vogue. Rachel was previously the Rome bureau chief and European culture correspondent for The New York Times, and the two sit down to discuss highlights from Sean's new book, Chasing the Devil at Foggy Bottom, linked in the show notes. A bit like Faith Angle, Sean argues religion is often overlooked, to the detriment of many. In the Iraq War, in Russia's current war on Ukraine, in debates over climate change policy, in responding to a massive uptick in global refugees, and in all kinds of other ways. Enjoy the conversation. Well, thanks so much for having us today. I found so much food for thought in your book, Sean, Chasing the Devil at Foggy Bottom, about your years in the Office of Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department, which is 2013 to 2017. And you set out in the book to ask three questions. Why is it important for American diplomacy to have a capacity to understand religious dynamics, global religious dynamics? How does one do this sort of work? And how do you institutionalize and expand innovation, like you did in this office, in, as you put it, one of the most sclerotic, change-resistant, and now depleted parts of the federal bureaucracy? So those are big questions to start with and that inform the book, but I thought I would just throw those out there to see if you have just some overarching thoughts on, on what you found in your exploration of those questions. Well, thank you, Rachel. It's great to be with you. And, and Josh, thank you for sponsoring this conversation. I think the, the first question, why why is this work important, is that, as Secretary Kerry often said, we ignore religion at our peril. And the example I point to in, in a full chapter early on is the case of Iraq, where we missed at four or five extremely important junctures in that escapade, we missed taking the religious dynamics into account, and the problems just kept cascading and getting worse and worse. And I looked at the public record and also some of the the released uh, cables and memos that were circulated in the Bush administration, and religion was willfully evaded in their discussions about whether or not we should invade. And once we did invade, how do we deal with the insurgency? How do we do a counterinsurgency strategy? How do we do post-conflict reconstruction? And Iraq is an extremely interesting and complicated religious landscape. And you'll see some vague references in the memos about this Sunni-Shia thing, but we're not going to worry about that. And I would say that at least since Vietnam, the, the Iraq invasion was probably our worst foreign policy blunder. 
there's an institute at, at Brown University that's counting the cost, and currently they're estimating the total cost will be over eight trillion dollars by the time we get paying we pay back all the uh, money that we borrowed from various countries. So it, it's as my former mentor Brian Hare said. Governments investigating religious dynamics internationally is sort of akin to brain surgery. It may be necessary, but it can be fatal if not done well. And so I, I think one of the, the most recent examples of failure in our foreign policy is a case where the religious dynamics were basically ignored or misdiagnosed. So not doing this kind of work is important because it can lead to disaster. But a subset of that is that religious actors are busy all over the world doing amazing things. They're also doing ambivalent sorts of things. So religion is a multivalent force in global politics, and we've never been very good at it. And so the larger question for me when Secretary Kerry invited me to come in was really the how question. In a sense, in his mind and in my mind, the question of why was pretty clear but the much harder question then, given the complexity of religion around the world is, well, what do you really do? What does that mean? And, and how do you find people who know how to do it? And then how do you train this vast bureaucracy to take over that work? Because you really can't do all of that from a, a snug office on the seventh floor of the State Department. And I frequently said, we're here to put ourselves out of business, that our goal was to train people at our, in our embassies on how to do this work. Now, I got a lot of feedback on that. People said, oh, no, you should never say you're going to put yourself out of work in the federal bureaucracy. But, but ultimately, the analogy I saw was to the integration of human rights into U.S. foreign policy. You go back to Jimmy Carter's years when he tried to move human rights into the center of our, our diplomacy. A lot of people said, that's crazy. We're realists. We don't have time for this mushy human rights stuff. But now, even in, in conservative, dare I say, even reactionary administrations, they still do human rights work. They may not put as much effort and energy into it. But that was the, the analogy I was using in my mind, that I, I felt like if we had eight years to do this work, it, it would become really ingrained in the DNA and there would be less needs for a, an office like mine on, on the seventh floor. And now the innovation piece, obviously, we failed in the sense that we had four years of life and then the next administration came in, shut down our work. And now two years into the Biden administration, they have not restarted it. So I, I don't get I don't get a very high grade for making progress on that third question. I think that what you say about Iraq is really interesting. And this is a thoughtful, open hearted book, but it is also driven by a certain amount of anger, I think, at what yeah. you see as a gigantic foreign policy failure. And I think you state what probably a lot of people in Washington and the State Department know, but maybe not a lot of everyday, so to speak, Americans know, which is you say that inside the State Department, there is a near universal belief that the invasion of Iraq led to cascading disasters and irreparable damage to America's standing in the world. And I wonder if you could just continue what you were saying about that. And if you think that there's a way of recovering from that and what, what you see happening in that direction. Well, we fought the longest wars in, in our country's history in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, 20 years later, we're still struggling to pull the plug on them. And, and let's be honest, neither Iraq nor Afghanistan have the prospects of becoming um, strong, democratic regionally stable uh, countries uh, anytime in, in the near future. So future presidents are still going to be dealing with the fallout. I think secondly, in C.J. Chiver's book, The Fighters, is very good on this. We don't know where our weapons went. I mean, literally billions of dollars of American weapons are still floating around the world in the hands of not so nice people. And so we will continue indirectly and unintentionally putting weapons in the hands of people who have very, very bad ideas about how to continue to use them. So even if uh, peace broke out in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, from stem to stern, the circulation of these weapons globally uh, will be a scourge that continuing administrations are going to have to deal with. And then finally, I think the notion of democracy promotion has suffered as a result of the, the original idea that if we invade Iraq, we write a constitution, they have an election, and suddenly peace and democracy are going to break out overnight. But it was sparked by a military invasion. And I think a lot of liberals, frankly, and a lot of centrists now have pulled back from democracy promotion because how Iraq, as 
in essence, sullied that notion that America could promote democracy because of the means they chose, not the goal, but the means. And I think there's still reticence today on the part of a lot of folk to engage the world from the American perspective because of the bad taste left uh, over the disaster of Iraq. So I think the prospect of stability in in that part of the world are long-term. I I don't think they're short-term. And I think every administration comes in thinking we're going to fix it and we're going to solve it and then find themselves overwhelmed by the cascading unintended consequences. You talk about some books that are kind of framing concepts. One, you're fairly critical of Samuel Huntington's clash of civilization because you say it made things harder for diplomats. It reinforced stereotypes of the West and Islam. And then you're complimentary of Madeleine Albright's book, The Mighty and the Almighty, in which she argues that I'm a diplomat. I have experts for everything, for financial things, for economics, for politics, for infrastructure, but I don't have a religion expert on my team. And that seems to inform your thinking of why this office was was important. Yeah. So one of the things as a diplomat you you try to learn or they try to teach you, whether you learn it or not, is another question, is you have to speak a language and a vocabulary that your audiences understand. So I, I did draw from some of the conversations about strategic thinkers and foreign policy experts, and I, I do I do have some graduate work in that area. I think making religion and religious studies intelligible to those folks is a much harder thing to do. And you see a lot of diplomats who are are well-educated in history, in strategy, in foreign policy, but they make very naive and flat-footed assumptions about religion. And I had to build an office built around people who had expertise in interpreting religion in specific contexts. So let me give you an example. You may understand Islam in London, for instance, that doesn't mean you know anything about the dynamics of the ground in, say, Baghdad. And I think in Washington, many times when we look at religion, we tend to reduce it to analogies of our own personal experience here. I found a lot of that in the State Department. People were asking the question, well, why would why would a young uh, Muslim person leave, say, London and go fight with ISIS in the Middle East? And we couldn't go and do field work uh, in where the fighting was going on. We couldn't call the ceasefire and then go and do anthropological interviews of the, the fighting force for ISIL. So we, we fell back in many cases on stereotypes about well, what was it like to be an angst-ridden teenager back in the 70s when I was growing up in, in the United States and southern states. I, I spent a lot of time telling people, analogizing off your experience as a teenager offers you no insight into why a young uh, a Muslim might go from London to, say, to Iraq or, or Syria to fight for ISIL. We had to talk to people to the extent we could find data, and that was very, very hard. But I had people who were uh, literally trained Islamic scholars themselves on our staff doing that kind of work. So I had to build a staff of people who knew what I didn't know. In fact, I would not have hired myself as a regional advisor because I, what I knew in terms of global religion was this tiny slice of global Christianity. We had to build a staff that themselves had had the experience and had the training, but also had networks of other scholars they could call on to help us assess religious dynamics in the, the very diverse set of, of countries that we worked in. Sean, may I ask if you could tell us just a little bit more about the office and and sort of the metrics of it? I mean, the State Department's a big place. It's pretty hard to change, you know, <laughs> what do they say? Oh, Peter Drucker, the line was, you know, culture is strategy for breakfast. And if it's a big, right. big culture with a big, right. myth, you know, uh, bureaucracy with a way of sort of doing life, uh, how does one little office come alongside? And also there was that Commission for Religious Freedom doing its own thing as well. How do they fit together? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, how many hours do we have? Um, so, not the, many. yeah, not many. That's, so I'll try to be brief. Uh, let me start with our office. We were in Secretary Kerry's bureau. So we are literally on the seventh floor and, and we have, I have a get out of jail free card in my pocket. I can talk to anybody in the federal government. I can talk to anybody around the world who's willing to talk to me. And because the State Department is very hierarchical, that was great for me because I'm an outsider. Now, it's also a downside because I'm an outsider. I didn't earn my way to the top. I didn't start on the loading dock in over 40 years, you know, get to the seventh floor. But we had great support from Kerry himself. He believed in our mission. He endorsed our mission. He wrote the forward to your book. He wrote the forward to the book, right. So, yes. you know, if he didn't like me, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have done that, trust me. 
But then the second thing is, I remember the day I was sworn in in this airless tiny room in the basement, and I thought, I am the dumbest person in the world because I now have this title that implies I am the religion guy. And even in a a bureaucracy of 80 or so thousand uh, colleagues to say nothing of the 7.8 billion people around the world, there's no way in the world one person can be the expert. And even building a staff of 35, it's a bit ridiculous to presume that we understand religious dynamics everywhere. So we organized our our office, I think, in in a cogent way. And this was based on advice I got inside and outside the building. The State Department divides the world into six regional bureaus, and they're the heart. They're sort of the Marines, if you will, of the State Department. Now, anytime you carve the world into six regions, you're going to make some mistakes, and there are going to be some boundaries that don't make a lot of sense. But still, our embassies in each of those regions report back to their regional assistant secretaries at the State Department. So what I did is I built a regional officer advisor team. So I had six advisors. I had a foreign service officer who managed them as a team. And what we would do is I would go with, I visited each of the regional assistant secretaries and brought my advisor for that region with me. And I said, look, you don't know us. You don't know what we do. But if you show me your strategic plan for your region, what countries you want to work in and and what are your specific policy goals, I'll go away for six weeks and plan with my regional advisor and outside advisors and come back to you and show you how our work can help you be more successful in meeting your specific goals. So we were an internal analysis and service organization within the State Department. I didn't bigfoot my way into those offices and say, well, you know, get out of my way. I'm going to help you. You don't know it yet, but we're going to cure you on religion. If we had done that, we would have been kicked to the curb uh, very quickly. So we we took on a, a mission of collaboration with those with those regional bureaus, and we came up with a threefold mission for the overall office. First was we advised Kerry when religion popped up on his screen, which was all the time. So he could reach down to us and say, Sean, uh, this issue has arisen here. What's your advice? And I think one of the areas we did quite well was with the Vatican. We, we might want to talk about that more specifically. But our second mission was to train embassies on how to assess religious dynamics at the local contextual level and engage religious communities there. So I would travel and I would help embassies build a religious landscape. I would go around the country meeting religious leaders and introducing embassy staff to those leaders and communities. And the irony is our embassies do this in all kinds of of subject matter areas. They meet with all the political parties. They meet with political leaders. They meet with business leaders. They meet with scholars. They meet with civil society groups. But we never had that capacity when it came to religion. Now, I didn't visit all 200 embassies and consulates. There's only one of me and 30 some odd staffers. So we, we made a dent in that. And typically we went to embassies where ambassadors had invited us in. When we first got up and running, Kerry sent out an all-points bulletin to every embassy and uh, consulate saying, "Here, who this is who these guys are. Welcome them into your house and let them help you. So we got a, a nice push at the beginning from the secretary. And finally, the third mission was to be the sort of walk-up window for any any organization, any scholar, any group, any country that wanted to find out well, who who works in the State Department on our issues with respect to religion. And we had literally thousands of people come knock on our door over the course of, of, of the four years. Those three missions kept us incredibly busy, but that, that gives you a sense of the structure. We were focused on the regional bureaus, but then we also had some cross-cutting issues like climate change, refugee resettlement, anti-corruption, where we picked a handful of these so-called functional issues that the secretary cared about, and we tried to integrate ourselves into the existing functional bureaus at the State Department working on those issues. Obviously, with a staff of 30-something and a giant world, many religions, you had to pick your battles. I wonder, looking back, if you could identify what you see as some of the most concrete policy wins of your tenure. Yeah, that's I, I call this the burning building question. <laughs> you know, the, the the crude fashion was like, well, how many lives did you save? And so I, I always am a bit ambivalent of, about that question because, you know, you don't you don't get rewarded in the State Department for your your body count that you saved. And and frankly, most of diplomacy is so mundane 
and frankly frustrating and unsuccessful that you, if you, you put the, the balance between success and lack of success, I, I know which way that, that tilts overall. But yeah, I, I'm happy to, to say a number of places. I think we were helpful in Ukraine after the first, the beginning of the invasion in 2014. I was invited by our ambassador, Jeffrey Pyatt in Kiev, and the fighting was going on still in the Donbass area and in Crimea at that point. And he knew that the religious dynamics there were incredibly complicated, not just within the Orthodox world, but also with respect to, to Muslims and Jews and a number of Protestant groups. So we went and did a survey there. And we were, were the ones who early on, I think, put our finger on the fact that the ecumenical patriarch in Istanbul was really locked in an existential battle with the Russian Orthodox Church based out of Moscow. And, and Ukraine is really sort of in the uh, the crosshairs of that global uh, conversation and fight that's going on. We picked up on the fact that the ecumenical patriarch, Patriarch Bartholomew, was debating whether or not to issue a, an edict that he was empowered to do to unite all the various flares of orthodoxy into one church. Now, he's done that. He actually did that uh, eventually in the, in the Trump era. But if he was willing to invade for the reasons, whatever they were back in 2014, at least in the East and, and in the South, my question was, well, what if the ecumenical patriarch nationalizes, if you will, that's a bad term, but brings all the orthodox of uh, uh, disparate groups together? If he did that, the orthodox church in Russia would lose lots of real estate, lots of money, and lots of parishioners. And would he would that be a large enough provocation for uh, Putin to invade the whole country? That was the question I discovered was a real and a live question. And I think we did a good job of running that up the flagpole to the White House to say this is this has to be part of our calculation as we look and try to understand what's going on. A lot of Putin observers in the West read his fever dream speeches where there's always a section about trying to reunite orthodoxy and claiming that somehow the decadent West has encircled him and stolen the Orthodox Church from Russia. And I think both an most analysts looked at that and thought, Nobody would be crazy enough to start World War III over a, a religious fight that goes back to the 10th century. That's that's irrational. Well, <laughs> here we are, you know, literally celebrating the anniversary, uh, first anniversary of his, his most recent invasion. And those paragraphs about, you know, Ruski Mir, you know, greater Russia and the role the Orthodox Church plays in that are still there. And I think it was Timothy Snyder who are heard once say, maybe we should take him at his word when he says in every speech that part of what he's about is trying to reunite the Orthodox world, which he thinks the West has helped fracture. So we played a role in that. I, I think our, our time on the ground analyzing the dynamics there and talking to, to Orthodox scholars and Orthodox folk all over the world led me to believe that he might well invade and potentially start a global war. And part of the justification seemed to be reuniting a fractured Orthodox church. We spent a lot of time in Israel-Palestine. Ambassador Martin Indyk, who was the uh, special envoy for the uh, negotiations, uh, asked my office to come in and do something that historically American diplomacy had not done, and that was to engage the, the three faiths, both in the United States, but also in the region there, to support their representatives at the negotiating table. And it was his thesis that U.S. diplomacy could have done more in past negotiations to have the constituencies stay with their leaders publicly when things got dicey and when things got tight near the end. So we spent a lot of time there, and we allowed religious voices to have a say and a voice, the in, input that is, into at least the American diplomatic uh, folk who were at that table. So we established a, a pretty deep network of, of religious partners, both here in the States, but also there, where they felt heard. And, and we frankly learned a lot about what each of those communities was thinking about the current state of affairs and the current state of uh, negotiations. I could go on. I could talk about Ethiopia. I could talk about Cuba. I could talk about Nigeria, our, our work on climate change and, and work on refugees, where I think we made specific uh, policy contributions. 
to pick up on what you were saying about Ukraine and Russia and the and the Russian Orthodox Church, there's a funny anecdote in your book where early on the Russian embassy sends someone to meet with you and she has a very long list of hundreds of questions and finally at the end says, does the office have a strategy to engage the Russian Orthodox Church? And you say no. And I wonder if what that meeting was like and was that the right answer? Well, you know, I mean, I literally... At that point, I had an office. I had a wastebasket. I had a phone. I, I think my printer worked on my computer, and and that was it. It was just, it was literally just me, and and this is this was the first country that sent someone, and even so, the uh, Russia desk officer. You know, every every country has sort of a desk officer that manages the the relationship, kind of on a day to day basis inside the State Department. Called me and and was completely flummoxed. Why would the Russian embassy in D.C. want to come and meet you? And and I'm like, I have no idea. And at that point, my, my knowledge of, uh, well, this is pre-invasion, right? No one was saying, well, you got to watch out. It's 2013. Putin might invade Ukraine. And she was straight out of central casting. This was hilarious. I mean, she was tall, blonde, blue-eyed, and you know, came in. And uh, the again, the, the desk officer who sat in on the meeting sort of rolling her eyes like, I I have nothing. I've never met this person. And she had a legal pad and with dozens of questions. And they were all very just anodyne, run of the mill. And, and I'm thinking, wow, the, the Russian bureaucracy must really be sclerotic like I always heard it was. You know, I had studied uh, when I was at the Kennedy School. We did a, a unit on, uh, I think, the potato growing management branch of the Soviet government. <laughs> It was just soul sucking to read all of the stuff that they did, and so I thought, well, this—they're just this is routine. They just—they're ticking a box. They heard about this new new office, and so this poor low level staffer. And then, of course, they dropped the bomb. The last the last question was like, "What is your strategy for the Russian Orthodox Church?" <laughs> and then, you know, in my first two weeks, I didn't think about what our strategy about the Russian Orthodox Church was going to be. But then, now now looking back, it was like. Wow, what were they trying to tell me that they clearly were thinking and fearing that we might actually notice what the government and the Russian Orthodox Church were going to be doing together? So in retrospect, it looks entirely creepy, but at the time it was just it, I was flummoxed. Yeah, those are those moments that you think are just background noise and turn out to actually right foreshadowing things. You talked a little bit about the Vatican and how you were in some ways running a form of, I wouldn't call it back-channel diplomacy, but you were in communication with Vatican officials and also with, with Secretary then Secretary of State Kerry. And we can nerd out about this a lot because I used to cover the Vatican. But I, I'm just, let's start with something that I think is people have in their minds, which is the Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical on the environment, Laudato Si, which gives a kind of a theological framework to climate change. And yes. I just wonder, thinking back on that, and then I'll ask you a little bit about you know, your experience with the Vatican, do you think that had actual policy implications and, and consequences? It was so momentous at the at the time, but I wonder. Oh, absolutely. I, I think so. The Pope came to the United States in September of 2015. Okay. And then it's a few months later, December of, of 15 in Paris, where the world came together either to finish this Paris Accord or for it to crater and burn. And so it was a very fragile, dramatic moment. And Francis lands and makes that joint speech to Congress. Now, he'd been invited by Speaker of the House Boehner earlier. I don't think John Boehner had the slightest idea how he was falling into the hands of a very smart, politically oriented pope. And so you have this joint session of Congress, and nobody's going to stand up and heckle the pope from the floor of the House. They might do that to the U.S. president today, but they were not going to do it to the pope. So what it did, it, and it was a brilliant speech, you know, talked about Thomas Merton, talked about Dorothy Day, talked about Martin Luther King Jr. He appealed to these moral heroes of the American people right to left. And he basically said, I dare you. 
I dare you come at me on my encyclical. I dare you come at the people in the White House today who are negotiating this treaty. And you're going to look like political fools if you do without saying any of that. So what he did is I think he he really chastened some of the opponents of the Obama policies on climate change. And he took the microphone away from them. That if they, in the in the closing months of those negotiations from September to December, if they had attacked the Paris Accord, they would have been attacking the Pope. And at that point, the Pope was arguably the most popular religious figure on the globe. So it was, it was, it was political theater. It was genius. But on the other hand, the document itself is incredibly powerful. And when it came out, I wrote a cover note to Kerry. I explained to him what I thought the import was of the of the uh, encyclical. Uh, I analyzed the policy piece of that. You know, th- there was, as there often is in, in these large Catholic uh, papal documents, there there is public policy advice, and you just couldn't hear right wing religious criticism coming about the the process that led to the the Paris Accord. So I, I think it was genius. I think it's a powerful theological statement. Uh, I think it was a call for people of goodwill across religion and non-religious groups to come together and find a way. And it was scientifically literate. He had talked to uh, climate scientists from all over the world. So it wasn't just a, a holy man getting up and saying, you know, climate change is bad. Mitigating climate change is good. It was a very sophisticated document, morally, theologically, politically, and also, I think, publicly. And it was critical of rapacious industry and its effect on the environment. It talked about the Amazon. It talks about right. the human person. It's kind of against big tech as well. Yeah. No. Everybody. Everybody got um, called on the carpet. None of us. None of us escaped uh, responsibility for where we are and responsibility for what we need to do. Then, of course, the dynamics between the Pope the political establishment of different camps in the United States, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Supreme Court, that's a whole other dynamic. I don't think the Pope is untouchable anymore in terms of... No, no, no. The the politics... Well, and I tell the story at the end, where near the end, where a certain presidential administration decided actually attacking the Pope in Rome with more politically advantageous back home than it than any international damage it might risk. So yes, he, he is now a, a worthy target of, of many political uh, orientations. You're talking about Pompeo. Yes, I am. <laughs> Do you want to go into detail about that just so to fill in? I, the- no, read the book. Well, how about that? Buy the book because you'll catch up on how I feel about uh, Mr. Pompeo. Well, as long as we're still a little bit on the Vatican, you at a certain point wanted to, you proposed organizing a conference at the Vatican with the Muslim countries of the Organization for Islamic Cooperation. This is in the wake of the refugee crisis of 2015. The idea would have been that engaging the Vatican might help local or national Catholic leaders across Europe encourage their governments to step up and bring in 120,000 refugees. Tell us a little bit about that idea and what happened. Well, I think probably the, the second most important issue to the Pope's early diplomacy was refugee resettlement, addressing the refugee crisis, so just a, a short distance behind climate change. And as you know, a, a million or so, ref, really more than a million refugees fled into Central and, and Western Europe. And it was a crisis. And my my memory is that the EU countries had agreed to, to take 125,000 refugees each, I think. And as is often the case when countries make a commitment to a concrete number, real politics on the ground have a way of catching up with that and, and overtaking and slowing it down. And the Pope was frustrated. The U.S. was frustrated. We were taking in like 110,000 a year there for a couple of years. But the numbers were just was just were astronomical. And the, the global framework, the U.N. Convention for Refugees from 1951, it's a f- very fragile, underfunded entity members of the UN pay pennies on the dollar compared to what they they need to pay in order to 
robustly resettle refugees around around the world. And that number is only going to grow. I mean, now we've got like 80 million official refugees and some scholars widen that lens to call it, call it people on the move, which is not a legal category, but really looking empirically at how many people are on the move because of bad politics or bad climate. And depending on who you talk to, that number is 300, 400 million. It's only going to get worse with climate change. So we've got a really rickety old system that is, is not sufficient to bear the, the load. And the Pope wanted to do something about that. John Kerry and President Obama wanted to do something about that. So I was the religion guy. And I spoke up in the meeting and said, you know, there might be an intersection of interest here between uh, the Vatican, uh, the United States, and interestingly, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is a sort of trade association for uh, Muslim-majority countries, and I think it's got 55, 57 member nations, many of whom have never signed the UN Convention. They have not joined the convention. But they were just as afraid of of bad actors migrating out of Syria and Iraq into their, their world. So they had a political interest in trying to control and rationalize the refugee flow. And the special envoy to uh, or the special envoy to the organization of islamic cooperation worked for me and he came up with the idea that we might be able to work with the oic on refugees i took it a step further and went to the secretary and said why not have a conference where you have religious senior religious leaders from the oic from the vatican from particularly european countries and also the archbishop of canterbury in the UK, let's stage a one-day event, two-day event where we talk about the problems, and then we have a, a big final agreement where the OIC, the Vatican, EEU, and the US have religious leaders officially move pushing their local or their national political leaders to step up and, and honor the commitments they've already made. We weren't asking them to make any new commitments, but you know, let that hundred twenty-five thousand uh, metric be met. And I failed. <laughs> and this is where diplomacy gets very real, is that somebody comes up with sort of a three-corner bank shot to get people to collaborate on an issue of mutual concern. So everybody was eager to help somehow mitigate the refugee crisis. But the Vatican eventually said no. And I think one of the things I talk about in the book is that I helped model taking no for an answer, particularly from religious groups that, you know, we didn't come back and threaten religious groups or we're going to do this or we're going to do that. I mean, I I had no power if I'd wanted to, but I did go back and ask them really, come on, what tell me just to make me a a less stupid diplomat, because obviously I I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. And the truth was the Pope was not going to be able to get all of the European Catholic bishops to stand up and go to their own countries because the bishops didn't think it was a good, well, some of the bishops, let me be clear, some of the bishops bishops would not do that in their country. Now, they were a minority, but no political leader is going to show his or her face in public only to be renounced by their own tribes around the world. And I, I should have been able to pick that up. And I, I kick myself for not knowing ahead of time that they, that was a bridge too far for, for them. You mentioned that you thought it was the Catholic leaders of Hungary and Poland who wouldn't have shown up, but maybe also others in in Western Europe. I also wonder if there wasn't a sense that the Vatican didn't want to do U.S. diplomacy. No, I, I, well, maybe, but but I they had plenty of chances to tell me in private that we still want to play with you guys. In fact, quite the opposite. They often told us we like playing with you guys because when I went with Kerry in. Or January of 2014, where he met his counterpart, Cardinal Paroline, uh, who just was the newly minted Secretary of State. Uh, They hit it off. And I was in that conversation. And and to this day, Kerry maintains a relationship with Paroline just as as personal friends. They were eager to find. And and there were some things we asked them to do. And they said, we can't do that. So I I, I think they, they were very clear and very calm and telling us, no, nah, that, that's a bridge too far there, but we can work over here. So I, I was really impressed with their ability to tell us straight, we might be able to do something in this arena, but in that arena, it's a bridge too far. So no, I, I think they would have they would have been much more direct if, if they didn't want to do it. Because the, the idea, it's one thing for Catholic leaders to say we need to be welcoming. It's another when it gets into the 
political dynamics of individual countries. And obviously, refugees and immigration is a gigantic third rail across Europe and in and the and Catholic voters, it's not so much an electorate, I think, as it is in the U.S. But there's they're on different sides. The conservatives are on different sides of the of the divide in that issue. It gets very messy. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think this Pope has shown he's not afraid of internal conflict in in his in his tradition. He's bringing on kind of guy, uh, which has surprised I think a lot of his his detractors. But it's one thing to. You know, I think he reached out to hearts and minds of, of, of lay Catholic all over the world, in, in some ways independent of, of the particular clerical leadership in some of those countries. So he, th- it is true that he gives great deference to the local church, as it's called, and he's not going to excessively throw his weight around in contradiction to what the leadership of local church wants. But he still can come to town and preach a sermon saying, we as Christians have a duty to refugees that we are not currently fulfilling. On this theme of a kind of culture of a tribe and what you're describing about uh, the bishops and and the, the Vatican, you know, you say in the book, uh, Sean, that that in some ways we've got to understand our own church-state history. It's a little complicated. And and by the way, Rachel Donadio has this wonderful piece uh, in the Atlantic Magazine a couple couple years ago about laicite. Yeah, and it's one of the best treatments yeah. of the of the the legal theme and 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 term. Every country has its own story. But, you know, you say we can't instrumentalize religion. Uh, we, we would be careful of that if we're doing diplomatic work. But, but, but you name like, you know, there are reasons that religious literacy improves diplomacy. And, and you say, you know, it makes it more effective. It's, it's costly when you ignore it, like Father Hare said. And, and it shouldn't be left, you know, alone to sort of simplified, untrained uh, State Department bureaucrats who, who, who reduce it uh, considerably. My question is whether you think that also applies to journalism. Is religious literacy, you know, was it when you were in government sort of problematically reduced by journalists? Is, you know, the addition of, of uh, thicker story, uh, history, nuance, uh, does it make a difference? How do you see it apply? How's your core insight in the book apply to journalists and journalism? Well, I've, I've lived in D.C. now for 23 years, and one of the, my other areas of expertise is religion and American presidential politics. You know, I wrote a book about the 1960 presidential race, which was Kennedy versus Nixon, and, and I argue, argue there that in, in the modern presidency, that's where the weaponization of religion began, at least at the level of presidential politics, and it has not abated in the intervening uh, 50, 60 years. So the, all that's to say is I have a lot of journalist friends, particularly religious journalists in, in the religion field, and what I've seen are a number of dynamics. Uh, for, for a while there, the number of religiously literate reporters in religion grew, and now in in a very... Uh, restricted or shrinking media space in America, those people, their tribe is smaller than it once was. When I was doing politics, I would often discover that when religion popped up as an issue, senior editors took it out of the hands of religion reporters and put it into the hands of political reporters who, and again, I don't, I don't want to scapegoat. I don't want to stereotype here, but I'm going to do that anyway. A lot of the, the political reporters just they they don't even have a scorecard. Like Protestants, Catholics, Evangelicals, Jews, Muslims, Baha'i, you, you, they sort of see them as like political leagues or something, and, and don't have a lot of sophistication. So they're looking at the firestorm in the last 36 hour news cycle, and the the, the Coverage flattens out. It doesn't get smarter. It's sort of uh, late inning baseball score-ish. It's reductive. And if you are a religion reporter, you you have to interact on dozens of domestic issues. You have to be literate on dozens of, of political and geopolitical issues. And you may or may not have a lot of training academically. So it, it, it's a very hard job. And you're under a deadline. You know, editor calls you at six in the morning. They want 1,200 words by noon. And oh, by the way, never mind. It's 1159. And that guy didn't die. He's still alive. And so the, the slapdash, get it done, pressure, and the recession of long form think pieces. Uh, means that the the coverage is not improved, at least from where I sit. Now there are there are some remarkable exceptions to that, 
So a lot of times I found myself trying to, to explain to a reporter, well, this is Ukraine and there are diff- two different Orthodox churches there. And you got to go back to the 10th century with Vladimir the Great. And you can just feel the brain cells dying and the pencil leads breaking on the other end of the conversation because they can't go back to the 10th century. So I've changed the way I interact. A lot of times I'll get a call from a reporter and I'll say, OK, Rachel, what's your deadline? You know, you got 30 minutes here or do you have six weeks? And then what then the second question is, well, what do you think the story is? And and so that way I've got a sense of the pressure you're under as a professional. Are you is is this you now what I encountered in the Iraq war is well, we've got Professor Jones over here who says bombing Iraq back to the Stone Age is brilliant, it's great, and Jesus wants us to do that. And so, Professor Casey, we're looking for you to say, this is stupid. Jesus doesn't want us to do that. And can you say that in less than three sentences? And for a while, I was happy to be that guy. And I was on a lot of panels. And I, and you'd read the article, and you had a half-hour conversation with a reporter. And it's like, Professor Casey disagrees and says, Iraq is, war is a bad idea. And that was I was a prop. You know, I was just simply there to fill a, a sentence where... Professor A and Professor B come off saying the opposite thing, and that was balanced journalism. So it's here we are in 2023. The best religion reporters in the United States that I have met are amazing, and they do great work. But I think they're getting squeezed out of the business by the economics, and I think they're still dealing with a, a coterie of senior political editors who are just dumb and can't be bothered they just need they just need a thousand words within 30 minutes so it's and if you're a senior editor and you're listening to this podcast that's not you yeah that's, that's some, right we're not talking about anybody you know right. no it's good it's uh, harder yeah. i think you're right it's harder and harder it's also very hard to write about religion on deadline the complexity oh, yeah. is infinite and i remember long nights and front page New York Times stories where I was trying to disentangle a lot of intellectual history on on deadline. But I also think there's a tendency that is in U.S. journalism. It's in some ways in U.S. diplomacy. It's a kind of Washington and U.S. mentality, which is that everything somehow has to be relatable to the United States or you have to find some parallel. And it's often other countries are very different and the logic is very different and different places have different dynamics and there probably isn't going to be an an exact analogy that you can get your head around. I mean, I sometimes think people are so, you know, you could talk about the Mets and the Yankees and this and people understand, oh yeah, well, I would never, you know, of course, that's totally different. But if you talk about, you know, different religious groups in foreign countries, it's very hard for people to get their Well, but but, I mean, look look today, you know, if, if China signs on the dotted line to fully resource Russia in Ukraine. I mean, religion, Ukraine is the most religion-soaked headline story right now. And it's the coverage is getting better on the religious angle. But the most of that is just the people who are doing that tend to be somehow allied with the Orthodox world, in my experience. There's a lot of interesting stories coming out, handful of scholars looking at this. But World War III may be on the cusp of erupting in Ukraine right now. And if that's the case, then it's all the more important we try to parse and understand the religious dynamics of what's going on there, at least in, in my view. I think that, that that's a really good question about, but I would be curious, what do you think now are really the hot spots that the State Department or any potential incarnation of this office, but in general, the State Department should should be looking at? We have Ukraine, we have Nigeria, we have Turkey, we have, you don't talk so much about Syria in the book. That's an issue. Tell us a little more. Well, I, I think I think Ethiopia right now is probably the most pressing and threatening place geopolitically where religion is a virtually unknown dynamic with respect to the United States perspective. I, I went to Ethiopia. It was the first country I visited. Spent about a week and a half, almost two weeks there at the invitation of Ambassador Pat Haslack. There had been a wave of the Arab Spring come through, such as it was into Ethiopia, and you had a government that was run by the Orthodox and the Muslim population. So it was sort of 50-50 Christian, primarily Orthodox, primarily a Muslim. But there had been some public demonstrations on the part of some very centrist Muslim groups on several Fridays in a row after prayers. And the, the autocrats who were running the country then did what any good authoritarian government would do. They, they threw the leaders in jail without charge and let them rot for a while. So what we saw in our investigations was that the continuing tension 
between Muslims and Orthodox, and then the overlaid on just the mind-boggling ethnic complexity there with over 70 different identifiable ethnic groups, but also the growth of, of Pentecostalism, and particularly a uh, prosperity gospel form of Pentecostalism. You know, all Pentecostals are not the same. So suddenly they elect the new president, uh, Abi Ahmed, who has an Orthodox parent, has a Muslim parent, and he is a member of a prosperity gospel church. And his political party is the Prosperity Party. Now, my suspicion is most of the people in the State Department at that point had no idea the origin of the term prosperity in the Prosperity Party. And Abe had actually written a doctoral dissertation about engaging religious communities to tamp down conflict in Ethiopia. And now we sit uh, sometime later where he is suspected of having committed uh, war crimes. Now, again, that, that has not been vetted thoroughly. But with the carnage there and with this very, very fragile peace, I don't think our diplomatic apparatus understands who he listens to and how his religion figures into this authoritarian turn he has led Ethiopia into. I think understanding the religious dynamics there are far more complicated than they were when I went there in 2014. I don't think our, our foreign policy apparatus has the slightest handle on that uh, complexity, and, and they need to know it if we're going to be successful in, in helping them build a sustainable peace. You know, obviously, you mentioned Syria. Uh, Syria is, uh, people used to talk about North Korea as the land of no good options. Syria makes North Korea look like a picnic today. And the religious dynamics there are just as complicated as you would want. I can't see any quick or easy answers there. And even mapping the religious communities that are being targeted, but are also doing some of the targeting may help you get a deeper sense of the complexity, but I don't know that it's going to yield any immediate actionable policy decisions. So those are just a couple of contemporary hotspots in addition to Ukraine. Modi's Hindu nationalism? Well, we've seen it. I think there's a pretty good grasp because Modi's been in this business for some time, going back certainly to the Obama administration. It was troubling even at the end of the Obama administration to see that some of the anti-Muslim and now anti-Christian work. Again, we don't have a lot of leverage there. At the same time, we're trying to work with them on climate. We're trying to work with them and not taking, not being brought into the, the Russian embrace there are not a lot of easy short-term policy options when you've got a large democratic authoritarian government that's doing a lot more bad things when it comes to persecuting non-favored religion. Now, this is, I mean, the, the growth of authoritarianism around the world is, is well-documented. Almost always in those authoritarian cases, you've got a preferred religion or set of religions, and you've got an attacked uh, cadre of religions and again, there are no easy, quick diplomatic solutions to those, but you, you've got to use sort of the day-to-day -day diplomacy where you push back and you say, this is not right, and it's not even good for your own country. But there's not a silver bullet here. So if the State Department decides not to reinstate the Office of Religion and Global Affairs, what, to conclude, would be your recommendations to the State Department in general to keep in mind a lot of these issues, even if it's not institutionalized in that office? Well, then it's going to be ad hoc. And the, the difficulty with an ad hoc approach is you're going to get some people fill that void uh, and they're going to do it not because they're trained in religion, but because they have a strong interest in religion. And I saw a lot of people like that who, who are good-willed, but when they're allowed a free reign to work in an issue set that's not officially part of the bureaucracy, that's where some dumb stuff happens. And when caricatures prevail and I do talk in the book a good bit about some of the countering violent extremism policies of the Obama administration, where you had a lot of cowboys and cowgirls uh, out there making bad policy decisions, allegedly based on a deep understanding of Islam. And it was not a deep understanding. It was a shallow set of stereotypes. So this is where the dangerous part of doing religious analytics and religious uh, engagement is problematic. You really do need people in those chairs who know what they're doing because they've been trained in it professionally. Well, that says a great deal about human innovation and ingenuity and actual leadership. And you uh, leave us pondering what the future may hold in that regard. Uh, thank you, Sean Casey, and thank you, Rachel Donadio, for the time today. It's great. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with top American scholars 
clerics and diplomats. Thanks for listening.